0: Welcome to the Masters in Psychology podcast where psychology students can learn from psychologists educators and practitioners to better understand what they do how they got there and hear the advice they have for those interested in getting a graduate degree in psychology i'm your host brad schumacher and today we welcome dr sarah gaither to the show dr gaither is an assistant professor in the department of psychology and neuroscience and a faculty affiliate at the cook center on social equity at duke university she is also the principal investigator of the duke identity and diversity lab Today we will learn more about her academic and professional journey, learn more about her research and what has fueled it, and what it's like to be an assistant professor in the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. Dr. Gaither, welcome to our podcast.
1: Thanks so much for having me, I'm excited to be here.
0: Well, I'm excited to talk to you. I read a lot about your history and your journey as well. To start us off, tell me a little bit more about your undergraduate studies and when you first took an interest in psychology.
1: Yeah, so it's a, a funny story for me and something that I tell a lot of my current undergrads who are thinking about grad school and how planned their lives need to be And that. I was actually a social welfare major in undergrad. I was not a psychology major. I had a psychology concentration, so I took some psych classes along the way. Um, I was really interested um, as an undergrad in just understanding how people work and how to make people happier, what makes them sad. And that's why originally I wanted to do social work. Um, and it wasn't until my an internship I had where I had to represent a family with a young three-year-old where I learned I wasn't a strong enough person to separate the transcripts and things that I had to write up about what was happening to the sexually abused three-year-old when I went home at the end of the day. And so I had thought I was going to be a social worker my whole life. um, And then things needed to change. So I took two years off after undergrad and I worked as a lab manager in a psychology lab at UCLA. And it was actually there that I, I really love psychology research. I had never taken psychology research methods as an undergrad, um, but learning how to do face perception studies and studying biracial populations there for the very first time is actually where I found my, my niche. So it was actually after undergrad for the most part.
0: I believe that is the UCLA baby lab where you learned all of that, the infant cognition and perception and everything. That must have been pretty interesting.
1: Yes, yes. I went from UC Berkeley down to UCLA. Um, so stayed in California. I'm California born and raised. Um, but yeah, it was very different for me working with infants. It was an eye tracking lab. So they have these fancy computers with infrared technology that can basically scan where babies are staring at when you show them different images on a screen.
0: It is cool. So at, uh, you, you you just said I was going to ask you where were you born born and raised in California you moved there for your undergraduate work or your family moved there or how did you end up in California?
1: So yeah, born and raised my whole life in California. So I grew up in Sacramento and went to the same school, kindergarten through 12th grade, then went to UC Berkeley for undergrad and then did two years of gap years at UCLA in Southern California.
0: Cool. And then for some reason, you decided to travel all the way from California up to Medford, Massachusetts to attend Tufts University. So, there are a lot of schools in Massachusetts that offer, you know, graduate programs in psychology. Why did you decide Tufts?
1: So, I never knew I wanted to go to graduate school until those gap years and it was me actually running the study where I discovered through a literature review of all things, which I know lots of people don't like doing, but Through this literature review, I actually discovered that in 2008, there wasn't a single paper in psychology that had a biracial sample. I'm a biracially identified person. My dad's black, my mom's white. I look very white presenting. And so for me, this literature review, which most people hate, was actually what pushed me to want to apply to graduate school. Um, So I took the GRE, I am not a test taker. I did not do very well in the GRE at all, but applied to both social and developmental PhD programs because I was always interested in kids and families and identity development and ended up at Tufts University in Medford, which is right outside of Boston, um, mainly because my advisor there, Sam Summers, was really an expert on interracial interactions and how our racial encounters make us feel safe versus make us feel anxious. And that was something that I really wanted to understand growing up in this biracial household, seeing how differently my mom and my dad were treated on a daily basis. um, That's what pushed me to choose Tufts over some of the other places that I was considering.
0: It's interesting. Everybody's journey is slightly different, and it's always uh, fun to find out why, and tell me a little bit more about how, you know, I mentioned in the intro, you heard me say, and the reason why, you know, your research is, is uh, you know, um, you identify as both uh, black and white, but you present yourself, as you said, you, you, more as a white, how has that driven you in your research and normally I'd share my screen here and for the audience the zoom is not really working that well but what I'll do afterwards Sarah is I will actually insert some of these uh uh, screens during our discussion here so I won't share my screen right now but what I will do is I'll share your uh, scholars at Duke page and then some of the other pages your uh, identity lab as well but tell us a little bit more I did bring up your um All of your information on Google Scholar, and a lot of it is on that biracial social identity, Uh, American white children develop racial biases and emotional reasoning, all of that. So tell us. I, I know. That a lot of research when I was going through grad school was based on my personal experience. And so it seems like a lot of researchers find a niche because some reason. and so i'm I'm rambling on here, but just tell me a little bit more about how that has helped you in your research, and has it has it hindered you in any way as well?
1: Yeah. So I I, I strongly identify as what we call a a me-searcher in a lot of (laughs) academic realms, right? When you study aspects of yourself. And I think that the tricky thing of being a me-searcher is of course, discovering something about your group or your identity that you're not proud of, you're not happy of. Um, We study a lot of negative aspects of being biracial. So increased cortisol responses, your body literally has stronger biological responses when someone's questioning what your race or your ethnic background is, right? So those things are hard to think about, um, and my rule for my research going forward is I sort of think about what is all the data that I could collect and all the possible ways a given study could end up. Would I still be proud with my name next to whatever that study could be, right? And so it is a bias in some ways, but it's at least a bias where I'm assessing myself and my own comfort levels before I go through all of the efforts for data collection. And um, For me, growing up biracial, looking white presenting, my brother looks much more mixed than I do. I was very hyper aware of race relations in the United States because of that. And I really just wanted to understand why it is that racial perceptions just shift our behaviors so instantly. Uh, That was my lived experience. And the fact that I could get paid for a living in grad school, I mean, albeit not much, but still paid as a grad student, Um, now as faculty to study these same questions is I think makes it one of the luckiest jobs in the world. I I can choose the research questions I want to do. And being a member of the biracial community, I think, gives me unique insight too into understanding some of the nuances and complexities of what it means to identify with more than one racial background. Whereas I think for other people studying groups that they're not a member of, it can be difficult to make sure that those scales or questions, right, are really measuring what you think they're measuring for a given group. So I'm always a proud researcher, even though not everyone in psychology necessarily thinks that's a great thing.
0: No, I understand what you're saying. And and uh, as I said, I'll share a screen here uh, post-production here. I'll, I'll share your CV. And I wanted to share the CV because uh, your thesis, your undergraduate uh, uh, thesis was having an out-group college roommate affects future interracial interactions. Then you also continued on your dissertation mixed biracial experiences from the targets and perceivers viewpoint. So it was evident for to me when I was looking at your research that you were very interested in this topic very early on as well. Um, one thing that I, I should ask is I know that you mentioned that you you I believe you um applied at other universities and So what really stood out for Tufts? I know you gave a summary, but was there anything in particular? A lot of times our audience asks, well, what should I be looking for when I know it's a good fit? Is it the people, the professors, the research, the credibility of the school, the location, the cost for your experience? Kind of speak to some of the top reasons why you went to Tufts.
1: Yeah, there's, it's a very tough decision. And I was fortunate to be accepted to a couple different PhD programs, right? But it only takes one. And what I tell all the students I advise now is you get into one, as long as you think that mentor and that location and fit is a healthy space for you, it just takes one, right, to get in. Um, So I was mainly deciding between going to a developmental psychology PhD program, where I'd focus a lot more just on kids and families, and then a social psychology PhD program. And At the time, I wasn't sure what I wanted to do with a PhD. I didn't think I wanted to be a professor, that didn't happen until graduate school. Um, So for me, my own thought process, a big part of it was I had seen online through the internet that there were slightly, it seemed like there were more job options for someone getting a social psychology PhD in that type of training versus a developmental psychology PhD in that kind of training. Um, So that was one big deciding factor for me. The other thing was thinking about where race relations existed Um, different locations in the US, right, are more racially diverse than others. Boston is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. And I actually thought that was a really interesting component for me to be able to try and study race relations within a context like that historically. So for me, thinking about where you are, especially if you're recruiting participants or people for your study, If the people you wanna study don't exist there or the climate or the culture doesn't exist there, it's not gonna be a very fruitful place for you to be doing a PhD work. So those were my two main factors. Um, In addition, I really liked the city of Boston. It seemed like there was lots of things to do. Uh, There were jobs for my then boyfriend, now we're married situation. So partner questions, right? Those kinds of things are a little easier in bigger cities. So um, those were some of my deciding factors.
0: A lot of people wonder, well, I'm going to go to graduate school, but unless you know ahead of time, how do you know whether or not you want to go the academic route, stay in the academic field or go out into the public start your own practice or do whatever. So my question to you is at what point did you know that you wanted to stay in the academic field and become an assistant professor?
1: I think what's really important is if you are interviewing and considering graduate programs, there are some faculty in academia who really think if you get a PhD you have to only be a professor and that's your only job option for you. There are other faculty like myself who think there are lots of jobs in the world where we need people trained with social science research skills to make good surveys to do user interface um, outcome measurements right. Um, So I think that first choice if you're not sure about what it is you want to do, you need to make sure that that advisor and my advisor Sam Summers at Tufts was super open to any of these types of different career path options. Um, So that's really, really key to make sure again you're in a safe learning environment for that five to six year period of your life. Um, I think otherwise you know it was teaching a course as a teaching assistant, I never even took social psychology until I was a TA for it in graduate school. I got into a social psychology PhD program, but never took intro to social. Um, And teaching that and actually looking up definitions and those kinds of things with students, recognizing that there were a lot of multiracial and multiethnic students at Tufts that never worked with someone who was multiracial or multiethnic themselves. And that experience of being a form of representation for these students was just It was awe-inspiring to me. The fact that I could create this learning environment a learning space and becoming this role model mentor for so many underrepresented students made me realize I had never had a multiracial or a racial minority mentor actually in my entire academic career until grad school. So that desire for me to help representation issues, to help fuel these new passions and desires for what people want to study through teaching is actually what ended up persuading me to want to consider academic positions.
0: And it's not only that, but a lot of people, I was a teacher for a long time as well. The students, uh, some students, especially freshmen, uh, may think that the teacher knows all the answers. And we don't. We don't. We, we actually learn through our students many, many times. And so it's it was rewarding to me to be a teacher. And so I can kind of relate uh, to you wanting to continue doing that. Um, before we talk about what you're doing now, I do kind of have a uh if you recall back in hindsight uh, during that process of applying for graduate schools, would you do anything different in terms of that process? And if so, what would that be?
1: I think I would have applied maybe a little more broadly to more schools. I applied to eight schools for PhD programs, but about half developmental, half social. And I, I think the reason I applied to both types of programs is I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to study. In fact, I didn't even write in my application wanting to study biracial things. That was not a part of my personal statement for graduate school. It was studying race relations more broadly because at the time there also weren't a lot of faculty who were studying multiracial experiences and that research fit, right, is so important for you to get into a PhD program and matching an existing faculty member there. So I I think I wish I was a little more honest with myself on what it is I wanted to study and a little more proud even of the fact that I discovered this thing in my gap year. And yet I had this publication in a top developmental journal. I didn't think it was cool enough, right. Or big enough to study in grad school. And I wish I had been more honest then. it wasn't until about my second year of my PhD, when another one of my advisors, um, Nalini and Bodhi, had told me in a meeting, you know what, Sarah, I think you need to study this whole multiracial thing. There's no one really doing it. Like you should do that. You know, you can do these other things too. And it, it was that conversation with her, right. That made it seem like it was okay for me Mm -hmm. to want to study what my actual true interests were. So that's probably what I would redo.
0: Okay, very good advice. What was your first job after you uh, graduated with your doctorate?
1: I took a postdoc position, um, so extra school, even beyond your PhD, um, at University of Chicago. Um, It was a provost postdoc position, so it was funded through the university, not on a grant, Um, And I actually took that because it was with a developmental psychologist, Katie Kinsler. Since I didn't get a ton of developmental training in my social program, we didn't have a developmental area at Tufts at the time, although they do have developmental faculty now. Um, And I didn't feel like I left my PhD career well-versed in sort of the current methods for how to study these issues with kids. So I spent two years um, teaching a little bit at University of Chicago and then also fine tuning my developmental training
0: very good and now it kind of brings us up to the present or at least how you uh got to Duke University and that's my next question is you've been at Duke University since 2016. tell us how you found the opportunity at Duke and did you apply to other positions and why did you select Duke
1: I applied to 44 academic jobs wow. <laughs> um so you' yes, been to lots of places um it's very stressful. Um, the academic job market creates so much anxiety in everyone because it's your entire identity on paper, right? And yeah. random people who don't know you are assessing if you've published enough or in the right journals, and is your question broad enough, important enough? So I put a 44 jobs across developmental psychology, faculty positions, social psychology, and a few business schools, actually. So I have three different types of job statements, three different types of cover letters, All of those things, um, I was fortunate to get lots of interest across the U.S., and what it really came down to in choosing Duke over other places was the location, again, I'm going to go back to this, where I study a lot of multiracial and interracial interactions, and Durham, North Carolina, is very split between white and Black populations, and it's one of the most racially integrated places I've ever lived. So for me, being able to recruit multiracial and racial and ethnic minority participants it's very rare to find what we call a research one university like Duke to be located in a city that actually has a ton of racial integration. So that was a, a big selling point for me. Um, the other things I, I really liked North Carolina when I visited. It's very different than anywhere else I had ever lived before, but people are really nice here. At the time, North Carolina was very affordable. So my faculty salary went a lot further here than other places. Um, there's lots of strong resources they give me to help start up my lab. And the undergraduates seemed incredible. And that's, again, what motivated me to want to be faculty in the first place. Um, And I've since then, I've had anywhere from 15 to 25 undergrads working in my lab every semester at Duke. So having strong undergrads is another huge selling point for me.
0: I normally would share a screen about the Department of Psychology and Neuroscience at Duke University. I'll do that post-production here. But tell me a little bit more about the department and why should somebody consider going to Duke?
1: So I think if you are looking for a smaller, more close-knit department, that's also what my graduate training was at Tufts. We only had three social psychologists there. We have four social psychologists right now at Duke. it feels like a family oftentimes there's not a competitive nature i think everyone is doing a ton of really cool interdisciplinary work at duke too i have a couple joint public policy and psychology students for example we have collaborations in political science and sociology so i think duke even though a lot of universities tout this claim of being interdisciplinary they really do value you doing research and science across disciplines which is something that i think all scientists should be doing so Um, we really believe in strong quantitative training. So we take that very seriously in our program from a graduate perspective. And I think we're in this really cool movement now with a great new graduate cohort. They've started this amazing anti-racism initiative in our department for the first time, bringing in speakers and having community building events that I think we're just in a really exciting building time um, right now for us as a department too.
0: Uh, The other follow-up question that I have is tell us, what it's like to be an assistant professor. What's your typical day look like?
1: So my typical day at the beginning of my career is very different than now because I recently had twins about a year and a half ago. So I'm also an academic mom, which is a whole nother new identity for me <laughs> to be, um, you know, experiencing right now is one word that I use for it. So when I first started out as an assistant professor, you know, my everyday was setting up my lab, figuring out how to recruit students, um, how do I teach effectively in this new space? Because every campus or university is a little bit different with the culture, right, on how the students sort of communicate with each other. Um, my, most of my time is spent thinking up research ideas, though, and working with my graduate students, my postdocs, uh, my undergraduates, and having discussions with them about if they think this one question makes sense or not, or how do people even talk about identity? today in America, right, because these things are shifting so quickly in our society, so I spend a lot of my times in discussions with students about what things are happening in our current world and how can we do our best using social psychology methods to translate that into a way that we can measure it in an actual controlled lab setting or extend it out into the community, which is some of the new stuff we're doing now. Um, I do teach a class every semester, so I spend a lot of time teaching and class prep and those types of things, Um, but really, again, as an academic, there's a lot of negative. discussions about staying in academia on Twitter, for example, I think it's incredible. You have so much job flexibility to ask the questions you want to ask. You don't really have a boss other than some deans, and they're really not going to bother you unless you're a horrible teacher or not doing any research of any kind. So you can literally make every day yours. And now that I have young kids, I have this flexible academic schedule or I can still take them to daycare and pick them up and set my meetings when I want to set them and I can do both with as much ease as I think you could do in any job. And I wouldn't trade that for the world. So I don't know. I love being an academic.
0: Congratulations on the twins, by the way. (laughs) Um, Now, you should know, you probably already know this, there's a lot of research on twins as well. And so uh, being an academic, it would be interesting to uh, look at some of the twins research and how they are similar and different. And I always love looking at that kind of research. So
1: trying not to psychoanalyze them too much, but it's (laughs) it's difficult as an academic, so... (laughs)
0: Yeah, you mentioned as part of your day, you you advise a lot, and and as I mentioned in my introduction, you're the principal investigator and director. Is it the director and or principal investigator? I think, yeah, yeah,
1: either is fine.
0: Okay, of the Duke Identity and Diversity Lab, and the reason I'm bringing this up is I have found that uh, more and more, especially if you're going into a PhD doctorate program, lab experience and research is a must now. And so, how important from your perspective, is getting lab experience for someone who wants to attend graduate school in psychology.
1: It's essential. I don't think anyone will get into a psychology PhD program, regardless of if it's social, developmental, clinical, without direct research experience. Um, it's getting more and more competitive every year as we look for our own graduate pools. Um, even trying to present at conferences is something that people are looking for. So if you are working in a lab right now, I encourage you to talk to your professor or graduate students to see if there's even local regional conferences you can present that work at. Um, we see a lot of people applying with publications now. So that means not working in a lab just for one semester or one quarter, but making a commitment, right? And sticking with the same lab so that then you can maybe work your way up to authorship or design an honors project or something like that. Um, we co-author with a lot of our undergrads on our projects in our lab, because um, I think it is just this critical skill and helps you stand out a lot more in those application pools since getting a PhD is competitive and not everyone gets in. So the more you can do to help sell what skills you have to make you seem like a better prepared graduate student um, is absolutely key. So working in research labs, I think is an, a, a must.
0: I saw uh, a few of your uh, YouTube videos. One of them I actually really liked. I listened to it a few times. Uh, Five pieces of advice for PhD candidates. I'm going to put you on the spot. I have them for you. But do you remember some of the pieces of advice from that video for PhD candidates?
1: Yeah, I filmed that one a couple of years ago. So I meant to rewatch it before today. (laughs) Um, I... I almost feel like I have new advice now in some ways, now that we're in this post-COVID world, because I do think things have shifted a bit. And one thing that I find myself talking about with my current PhD students, other students I'm mentoring at other universities, is to really just be kind to yourself. Um, I don't think we're kind enough to ourselves. And I don't think we realize that our whole selves are coming to work every day, right? So pushing yourself too hard, too fast, even though I'm on here saying you all need all this research experience to get into grad school, You do, but I really want everyone to remember that we're all humans and we have lots of parts of ourselves and as someone who studies multiple identities for a living. It would be a disservice to me as an identity scholar if I told any of you to discount any part of you that maybe is more difficult at a given time. And so I don't think we give ourselves enough time to self reflect and I think that's something that I wish more PhD programs would actually push their students to do just as a general practice. and I think the other thing I've already said, right, is to be honest about what it is you want to study, what it is you want to do. I'm up for tenure this year, so we'll see what happens, but I really tried not to let the stress of getting tenure get to be in this process. I just did the research I wanted to do. I asked the questions I wanted to ask. I worked with the students who I wanted to work with and I had fun along the way. And I think that's what makes science great. So those would be some kind of updated tweaks, I think of some of the things that I said during that video, but you can correct me. <laughs>
0: You'll you'll be glad to hear that a couple of those actually do fit into some of the five that you talked about. Uh, The number four one was maintain a work-life balance, which you kind of talked about. Be kind to yourself and make sure you do that. Number one, you said stay true to yourself, which you've already talked about, and and be honest with yourself. Uh, Number two was ask tough questions to push science forward. And then number three, Find collaborators in a support system because you emphasize that this could be so draining. And when you're in a master's or graduate program, it is so draining. You feel all the pressure. And then you you tend to get in that mindset of, oh, what am I supposed to be doing? What should I be working on? But having that, maintaining that work-life balance and, and shutting that off for a second really benefits you because a lot of the studies do show that when you disengage, then you come back more refreshed and focused later on. And then the final one that you did say is take risks. Uh, And uh, I thought of this, you didn't say this, but I thought of the Yes Man uh, kind of uh, movie and, and everything else. So those were the five and I'll say those again, stay true to yourself, ask tough questions, find collaborators and support system, maintain work life balance, and then take risks. So you added a couple others, or you kind of elaborated a little bit more on those as well. Um, so I'll, I'll have this uh, on the screen as well. I'll share a screen for this YouTube video, and then your other videos as well. You have a good question answer video that uh, you talk about. And then you went into some of your, uh, uh, I think one of these was extra credit for maybe one of your classes, uh, randomly assigned roommates, what are the effects, uh, and then you had a good uh, video abstract of one of your um I believe it was back when you were in the baby lab, Uh, it shows Sarah Gaither's video abstract for developmental science, biracial infants and eye tracking. And so I found that very interesting as well. So
1: that was my first publication ever. So Um, (laughs) and it was a collaboration. And I think that's what makes science fun, right? Science can be so lonely, and there's lots of rejection and stress. But if you work with people who you like, it's basically the best job in the world. You just to hang out with your science friends and find out some cool findings. It's, I think doing science alone is, is not the right answer for anyone, but that's my own personal bias. So,
0: so you mentioned this already a couple times, uh, on your Twitter page, you list yourself as a social and developmental psychologist at Duke university, studying social identities at, uh, at the Duke ID lab. And so I will share a screen on the different branches of psychology and social and developmental. What are the main differences, um, to you and your own words, for those who are listening the first time and have never heard of social psychologists or developmental psychologists, what are some of the main differences?
1: Yeah, I actually think they're not that different. I actually Mm -hmm. wish there weren't areas of psychology, to be honest. I think everyone is a social psychologist, and everyone's a developmental psychologist. I think for for me on definition wise, I guess the main thing that differs is Developmental psychologists tend to look a little more at the context and what are these developmental pathways or experiences or trajectories that have shaped how it is we think now. Are there age differences, right, across the early lifespan in particular? although some developmental psychologists do study elderly populations. The majority, I think, are focused on early childhood and adolescence. Um, Social psychology, on the other hand, studies lots of things from romantic relationships, our decision-making and behaviors, what things bias, how it is we see our world and who it is we judge and categorize. Um, but again, I think all of us are a social psychologist, even if you go into clinical psychology, cause we've all judged someone at some point and that's social psychology. Um, so those to me are kind of the main ways people like to define them as different areas of research, but I think everyone does both and everyone should be doing both. Cause without considering the context, you're not going to be able to fully analyze what your results may mean anyway. So
0: I agree with you. I was actually on one of my more recent, uh, um, podcast that should go live here in a couple days, uh, Dr. Stephen C. Hayes said the exact same thing. He said, I did not want to be narrowed down. Uh, I wanted to be able to search and research anything I want. And he said, Brad, think about it. Anything that you can talk about, I can relate and study under the psycho- uh, psychology rubric and, and that umbrella. So to your point, almost anything can be applied in, in psychology. What do you love most about your job, Sarah?
1: I think working with students. I think that's honestly it. I, I People ask me, oh, why did you not go into industry? You could get paid a lot more doing diversity consulting, things like that. But I get so much joy out of teaching my students, working with my students, seeing those aha moments they have for the first time when they find that new result or finding. Um, I love motivating people. And I, I could probably do that in some industry jobs. But at least right now, my heart tells me I'm doing that fine in the context that I'm in. So I, I love working with my students. And I think also in, in line with those PhD kind of tips, um, giving a voice to populations in research that haven't had a voice to date. I think that's, you know, what you can't put a price on providing research and findings to support a demographic or a group of people who have been historically ignored within an entire field of science. Um, so that's really what gets me going every day.
0: Looking toward the future, what other goals or challenges do you have for yourself or the lab?
1: I think going forward, my dog is now barking, so I apologize if you guys <laughs> that. Um, but I think going forward, you know, the notion of what an identity is, is shifting all the time. Um, the multiracial demographic is growing really quickly, um, which is good job security for me in some ways, um, which is great. Um, but I think defining what it means to be a certain race, right, is tricky. And it's getting more and more complicated, especially as we start considering the intersecting identity that we have with other groups. And that's something that I don't think psychology as a field has done a very good job with to date. Trying to figure out how we can recruit larger samples to look at these intersections with gender, disability, sexual orientation, that's where we need to go as a field. But there's only so much time and so much money.
0: What advice would you give somebody trying to break into the field of psychology?
1: I think kind of like what I said in the PhD tips, um, ask the questions you want to ask, right? Do your homework, though, right? Lots of questions have already been asked. I think the worst thing you could do is start out on a research project and not do a thorough enough literature review, which is why I think that's the best skill anyone could ever develop because um, you'll waste so much time and money collecting data for something that's maybe already been discovered. Um, and that's not going to get you a job in either industry or academia. So. Do your homework, do your lit reviews. They're, they're, they can be fun, I promise.
0: I agree with you. When I worked on my thesis and then my dissertation, I came up with a question that I thought was so brilliant. Oh my gosh, I haven't seen this. And then you do a quick search. and Oh, somebody's already looked at it. But even if you find that somebody's looked at it, you can extend that or apply it in different areas. So always keep that in the back of your mind. So um, at the end of our podcast, we usually ask a few fun questions. So tell us something unique about yourself.
1: I think something unique about myself, my tongue can touch my nose, actually, that's one of my facts. So (laughs) (laughs) that's unique, I think I don't think anyone, not everyone can do that. Um, So
0: that's interesting. I know that we could Google that right now. And I could do that for you and, and find out what percentage of people can actually touch their tongue to their nose. Um, the other one is, uh, and I won't ask you to do that. You notice that I, I bypassed. I can that, do it. So. It's
1: fine. There, it goes. there you go. Nice, quick.
0: <laughs> <laughs> what is your favorite term, principle, or theory? And why?
1: I think social identity theory has to be my go-to theory. It's one of the quintessential theories in social psychology that has originally defined how it is our identities are so important to us, right? It frames us as having these distinct in-groups and out-groups of who makes us who we are. And my work is building directly on this th- on this theory by trying to argue that we don't have just one in-group and one out-group. We have multiple in-groups and multiple out-groups, which again, gets to that intersection Uh-oh. of but I think psychology needs to be um, a better job considering.
0: Here's one that's it can stay within the academic field, or you research or outside. What is something new that you have learned recently?
1: Something new that I've learned recently. That's a, a good question. Um, trying to think of positive things, our world is full of lots of negative things. And it's right. a good way to end this. Um, <laughs> I think one thing that I've learned recently, I guess, is how easily Twitter can be um, dismantled. Um, It's Elon Musk's recent takeover of Twitter. I love academic Twitter. I love it as a space for sharing science and connecting with collaborators and bragging about all of my students' accomplishments. But seeing how quickly one shift in leadership or change can actually dismantle an entire institution, I just haven't actually wrapped my head around that until these past couple of weeks. And so that's been something that's been very interesting for me to follow as someone who loves academic twitter and loves the space that it is i've joined mastodon now which is this new twitter migration space it's it's getting there i'm figuring out the space still um but it reminds me how incredibly constructed lots of things are in our Mm -hmm. society as someone who studies race for a living right race is a socially constructed category we've constructed what it means And Twitter, I think, is this weird, abstract way of thinking about other constructions in our everyday social communications of how it is we get news or connect with others. So I think that's been something I've been thinking about a lot the last couple of weeks.
0: Very timely. Very interesting. I found the same thing. I've I've seen some changes. Uh, One final question for you is, if you had the time and money to complete one project or go on one trip, what would you do?
1: I think I'd be selfish and take a around the world trip and nice. do it myself, actually. I've always I love traveling. Um, I haven't gone to many places around the world. I actually never traveled internationally until I was an undergrad. That's when I got my first passport. Um, so I would love to take an around the world trip. and if I had to tie it tied in with research, figuring out how being multiracial, multicultural, what are the universal things even across other contexts and landscapes, I think would be really fascinating to figure out how it is we have constructed race uniquely in the U.S. compared to other places. Um, There's been very little cross-cultural work on multiracial and multiethnic populations.
0: I think there's a larger percentage out there that would love to do a round-the-world trip than there is who can touch their tongue to their nose. So I I agree with you. I'd love that around the world trip. Sarah, is there anything else that you'd like to discuss or bring up on this podcast?
1: Uh, I don't think so. I think the last thing I'd say, just for people who are sort of thinking about what paths they want to do, it it doesn't always work out your first time applying. Um, I work with lots of students who apply one year to PhD programs or master's programs and don't get in. They get a little more experience and then they get in the following year. I think the other common debate of thinking about, do I apply straight from undergrad? Do I take time off and get more experience? That's a very personal choice. And it depends on how much research experience you've already had, how sure it is you are about what it is you want to study. Um, But don't be afraid to fail sometimes. I know we're in this society, especially this new Gen Z generation has this fear of failure is the stereotype that they already have. Um, But you're going to fail, but it doesn't mean you're always going to fail, right? And so keeping true to yourself and making sure that you're getting the experience you need um, and that it's okay to throw yourself out there if you don't always get the ball thrown back at you, you might get it next year.
0: Well, Sarah, I've really enjoyed our talk. I appreciate you taking the time out of your busy schedule to give us some of your uh, journey and advice. Uh, I believe based on the research that I'm seeing and and, uh, your publications, good luck on tenure. Uh, I'm sure it will happen. Uh, Thanks again for sharing your time with us.
1: Thanks for having me.
0: Thanks for listening to the Masters in Psychology podcast. If you want to learn more about our guest or listen to other podcasts, you can visit our website, mastersinpsychology.com, where you can search through all of the schools in the United States that offer advanced degrees in psychology. You can also find us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. And remember, if you enjoyed this podcast, please like, follow, or share.